This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's new issue, Death Wish, is available in print and online and is full of great pieces that Dig listeners will enjoy. One that might be of particular interest is Stuart Schrader's in-depth exploration of the United States' past and present role in the global security assistance industry. Schrader, who appeared on The Dig last July to discuss his book Badges Without Borders, traces a sprawling and decentralized colossus of programs and initiatives that deploy U.S. police officers to train and equip other countries' police forces. American cops, writes Schrader, quote, have become frontline U.S. diplomats. Policing today is a triumph of globalization. Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout. That's one word, all caps, the dig, to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the 16 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, one word, at checkout. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Enthusiasts for American empire have long scanned the global horizon, looking out for any possible threat to the capital L liberal world order. Imperial apologists have consistently refused critical reflection, confident that the solution to any problem of empire was simply more imperialism. The very monsters who they insisted could only be destroyed by an intensified imperialism had, of course, been created in good part by past imperialism. The Ottoman Empire's dismemberment, narco wars across Latin America, and support for Afghanistan's mujahideen are some obvious examples. But imperial apologists refuse to learn from a history that they disavow any complicity in making. It's no surprise, then, that imperial apologists never bothered to consider that empire was destabilizing the metropole, too. They could never make out domestic threats to their prized order. Beyond, of course, those leftist anti-imperialist critics who they scolded for engendering a potentially fatal crisis in American confidence. They couldn't recognize the clear signs that American empire abroad was rotting out its democratic foundation at home. It should have been rather clear by the early 1990s that unipolar triumphalism carried with it a growing right-wing counter-narrative that a multicultural, globalist, cosmopolitan new world order had been the Cold War's true winner. Pat Buchanan's strong showing in the 1992 and then 96 Republican primaries railing against a globalist elite whose free trade deals, mass immigration, and foreign entanglements had sacrificed the American people, it showed that it was no fringe phenomenon. But with no lessons learned, this newest new right took the White House in 2016. Last month, their most avant-garde forces stormed the Capitol. 
the product of a decades-long transformation of imperial patriotism into the belief that the American people were the newly and truly colonized, colonized in the most fevered imaginations by an empire of adrenochrome-extracting pedophiles. My guest today is Jeannie Moorfield, the author of the 2014 book Empires Without Imperialism, Anglo-American Decline and the Politics of Deflection. The book is a remarkable close reading of a set of the post-9-11 United States' intellectual apologists for empire alongside their Edwardian British counterparts from a century ago. Moorfield identifies some incredible echoes across history of liberal imperialists refusing any sort of reflection upon empire's crimes by emphasizing who we are as good liberals rather than what we do as illiberal imperialists. American empire's crimes abroad are, of course, legion, something I've discussed before on the show and will do again soon with Vincent Bevins, the author of The Jakarta Method. But empire has also long deformed our domestic politics, with nationalism, militarism, and border militarization legitimating a punishingly brutal economy alongside a monstrous carceral state to manage its disorders. Trumpism is the political subjectivities that this ordinary history has made a reality. Liberals will not end empire, as Moorfield shows, because they refuse to examine the horror shows at home and abroad that it is perpetrated. Trump did, of course, produce a reckoning, however sanitized and superficial, with the long disavowed history of American domestic racism. But the bipartisan establishment has refused any such reckoning over empire abroad. Until and unless the left can force such a coming to terms with the imperial death spiral feedback loop of global and national political psychosis that we've been caught up with in, this interregnum remains doomed to be characterized by the most morbid symptoms. Before we get started, please do support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. We've got left-wing books to send you as a thank you gift, plus mugs, coffee mugs, and soon tote bags. Currently, I am saving up a bunch of dig funds to spend on another season of Antibody, our left-wing narrative commie this American life type thing that we did for the first time last year. It will be good. Anyhow, if you have not done so already, please donate now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, join the dig book club and meet Sarah Jaffe on Zoom to discuss her book, Work Won't Love You Back. How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Do so at thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Thedigradio.com is also where you can find all of our archives, organized by subject and by guest. Check it out. All right, here is Jeannie Moorfield, a professor of political theory in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham, and a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. Her intellectual interests sit at the intersection of political theory, history, and international politics, and her next book, Unsettling the World, Edward Said and Political Theory, is forthcoming this fall. Today, we're discussing her 2014 book, Empires Without Imperialism, Anglo-American Decline and the Politics of Deflection. 
Jeannie Moorfield, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. In 2012, after a U.S. Army staff sergeant massacred 16 people in Kandahar, Obama, Hillary Clinton, Leon Panetta, and General John Allen all said some version of, this is not who we are as a country. One of the subjects of your book, the, the liberal interventionist intellectual Michael Ignatieff, after Abu Ghraib said that we must, quote, stay true to who we are. And you write, quote, as a state practice and a political ideology, imperialism presents perhaps the ultimate challenge to the founding narratives of liberal equality, individual freedom, and sovereign autonomy. Explain your book's general argument that in Edwardian Britain and the post-9-11 United States alike, imperial apologists always emphasize who we are as liberal empires rather than what we do as illiberal imperialists. How and why, as your book's title puts it, do these thinkers conjure up empires without imperialism? Well, I think both eras, the reason I chose to focus on both eras is because there's a, a, a really eerie similarity between the way that they try to square the circle between liberalism, which they describe in the terms that are familiar to us as being about liberal liberal individual rights, about human rights, about uh, freedom, about equality, and even about democracy. And then at the same time, their real commitment to these ideas of imperial greatness, or, you know, in an, in the American context, ideas of a kind of global liberal exceptionalism that is the U.S. And what's so interesting is that uh, it, in both of these eras, people are uncomfortable actually with the entire concept of empire, because they know that it actually, it, it sort of vitiates the very things that they're calling for politically. And that discomfort creates all kinds of unsettling political issues for them that they then have to work around really, really hard. <laughs> so the who we are narrative is a way of deflecting attention away from the centrality of that discomfort. And the book is about deflection more broadly, about keeping all of the things that these thinkers as liberals know are violations of their, their espoused politics in the periphery of our vision so that we can never look at them for too long. And what talking constantly about who we are as liberal people sort of draws our attention back to the middle, back to this staring in the mirror at this image of the liberal polity that they've conjured up and away from the kinds of violence that they that we they don't want us to dwell on for too long. And my argument is that that is actually liberalism. <laughs> like I think that liberalism more broadly is that tension and is that um, deflective unseeing. Before we get any further, let's briefly do a, a glossary and lay out who your book's characters are one by one, who they are and, and what their influence was, starting with the British imperial apologists. And we'll start with the round table. Who were they? So the round table, there was a, a lot of, these are sort of proto think tanks and they emerge in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. In primarily in London, they're primarily around Oxford. 
And they're these sort of associations of people who are really, really worried about the status of the empire, and in particular of the idea that the Britain is on the precipice of decline. And so the Roundtable is a group of scholars that got together to kind of theorize a way out of what they saw as the most troubling problems of the empire. They were liberals in the sense that they espoused all of the values which I just was talking about, and they were also facing a, a number of political problems that were immediate to the time. Mostly, they didn't want to be compared to German imperialists, and so they had to figure out a way of somehow being a different kind of imperialist. And the way that they did that was through these narratives of. Well, they transformed the idea of the empire into this idea of the Commonwealth, and then they put it forward in a kind of meta narrative package that absolved the British Empire basically of all of its violence and extractive history, and presented it as a liberal project to the world. And then, who were some of? And they, oh, they, sorry, they had a tremendous amount of power. So, sorry, Lionel Curtis, uh, Philip Kerr, Alfred Zimmern, let people involved in this, other people like Lord Milner, you might have heard of, and they were not just extraordinarily powerful thinkers at the time, they were also deeply invested eventually in the Foreign Office during the war, and they had a hand in the creation of the, of the League of Nations. And then who is Jan Smuts? So Jan Smuts was uh, a general from South Africa who was prime minister, um, and he was twice, uh, right? Twice, exactly. He's sort of known as the grandfather of apartheid. His many of the kinds of land reforms that he uh, brought about were um, laid the foundations for what would become apartheid later after the war, the Second World War, and um, he was the one who famously jailed Gandhi. And Jan Smuts was is an interesting figure because he's from South Africa, but he is, went to Cambridge and was extraordinarily identified with Britain uh, during the war. The time that I wrote about him, he is involved with the war effort, living in London, and writes most of the pamphlets that are going to become also the foundation for some of the worst portions of the League of Nations, namely the mandate system, which is essentially codifying what's a kind of informal, formal imperialism, but calling it internationalism, Jan Smuts came up with that language. Jan Smuts would also write the language for the preamble of the United Nations um, eventually. So he's a very complicated figure. Okay, on to the Americans, starting with Michael Ignatieff, who, weirdly enough, is also not only an American, but also a Canadian politician. Right. So Ignatieff uh, is kind of a liberal darling. He was one of the very explicitly liberal intellectuals who was involved in the creation of what's called the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. And uh, quite famously, during the Iran, I mean, Iraq War, he was one of those intellectuals who came out really in support of the war. Um, later, he came out with a non-apology where he said, "I, you know, I'm sorry I was wrong, but I had bad information and he then, uh, he went on to run for office in Canada. And um, he is one of these people who turns up consistently like a bad penny in the pages of the New York Times or really anywhere. And um, and he's constantly being hosted at large universities to give uh, stirring speeches about our liberal culture. 
It's amazing that he became the liberal leader in Canada after publicly identifying himself for years, it seems, as an American. Yeah, and people in Canada, that was not lost on them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, on to Niall Ferguson. Yeah, (laughs) well, Ferguson is, again, he's uh, like Ignatiev. He's one of these people who's had a perennial attachment to an Ivy League institution and um, he, you know, he was at Oxford and then he was at Harvard for years. He's a historian. Now he's at the Hoover Institute. Um, and he he's from Scotland. Yeah. And went to Oxford as an undergraduate and had very transformative and evidently traumatizing experiences as a young conservative where people on the left were very mean to him. And that's when he decided that he wanted to um, commit himself to both being a Thatcherite and uh, supporting a kind of re-envisioned uh, British imperialism, but for America this time. And he writes an extraordinary amount. He appears in all kinds of, I think he's in Newsweek, and he writes for the Financial Times. And he has these books that you will often see, like in airport bookstores, um, that your mother will pick up when she thinks she wants to read something scholarly about the First World War written by a guy from Harvard. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and last but certainly not least, Donald Kagan. Yeah, so, you know, Donald Kagan, historian of classics and has written pretty much about Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War and Athens for the entirety of his career. He was one of these people who left Cornell in a huff uh, along with uh, Bloom in 1968 because of university was just being too soft on the student radicals. And he has put out several editions of books about the Western, um, you know, our, our Western heritage with some worked with some of the worst neocon think tanks and um, also was very, very excited about the Iraq war. Oh, and the reason that I read him is because that one of the strategies that I talk about in the book is a, called the strategies of antiquity, which is reading contemporary imperialism through the lenses of, of Athens, basically. And I pair him with an early 20th century British thinker, Donald, I mean, um, Zimmern, Alfred Zimmern, who similarly read um, the sort of liberal history of the British Empire through a kind of eternal liberal Athens, which is what um, Kagan does as well. The British Empire was called just that. But by contrast, the American Empire, it was so foundational to the American settler colonial project of transcontinental expansion that it's rarely conceived of as such, as an empire. But interestingly, post 9-11, you write that American imperial apologists' big contention is that Americans' problem and the core threat to our empire is that we won't forthrightly acknowledge our imperial role. How does Americans' relationship to American history inform how Americans think or in many ways do not think about this incredible reach of American empire, the coups, the hundreds of bases and dozens of countries, the wars, the drone strikes? And how does that in turn compare to how British national identity as a empire, how that shaped dominant interpretations of their own empire and imperial history and imperial history a century ago? So, you know, what's so interesting when I moved to this country, I'm now in the UK, and I just assumed that when I taught about the British empire, I would be teaching students who learned about it and had some sense of it. And, um, and they have none, like they, 
They know as little about British imperial history as most students in the U.S. know about um, settler colonial genocide. And in fact, it's it's actually shocking. And I think part of the problem is, and because British imperialism, even particularly in the early 20th century, and I mean, still through the demise of the Commonwealth I mean, or the of the empire in the 50s and 60s, understood itself to be fundamentally different from other empires, that it was it was liberal, it was about freedom. Uh, Robert Seeley has that famous quote where he said that we have peopled and conquered half of the world in a fit of absence of mind. And that real inability to imagine that as good English people just out there trying to make a dollar, we could accidentally have maybe killed some people or caused a famine is really still pretty stuck in, I think, in the British national consciousness. And so there's an unwillingness to talk about it, except in the kind of worst nostalgic forms that come out around Brexit and around these sort of discussions about the the relationship between British sovereignty, the European Union, and whatever greatness this state used to have. So I think, in a weird way, Britain and America are very similar in their in the popular culture's inability to bring to the center of attention the real foundational work that imperialism did for the polity and does for the polity. And that the and that and its relationship to the kinds of ideas of freedom and equality that supposedly are what make the countries what they are. So American exceptionalism is not so exceptional. It turns out. I think British exceptionalism and American exceptionalism are very similar. The word empire you write came back into vogue with the war on terror. Quote. In response to the existential threats of a chaotic, barbarian world crystallized in the worldview of Islamic extremism, these thinkers have championed a vision of liberal imperialism that evokes the kinds of explicitly nostalgic, justificatory celebration of empire rarely seen in either public or academic culture in Britain and America since formal decolonization. But for politicians, not so much. Bush in 2004 said, quote, we are not an imperial power. We are a liberating power. What accounts for that big push for imperialist intellectuals demanding that empire be forthrightly embraced during that period, even as the politicians who managed empire still found it to be in such bad taste for whatever reason? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think it's interesting that the two greatest champions of this, so Neil Ferguson, who's obviously British, but also... Um, Michael Ignatieff, who's Canadian, they're coming in a, 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 to this as sort of champions of America who see it from a, you know, kind of novel external point of view. And they're able to, to both position themselves as people who really understand this state, but that the state doesn't fully understand that it really just needs to man up and be an empire and that that's what's going to save it. And um, And I think they... They sort of overplayed their hand there. I don't think the kind of explicit turn to empire played out for them in the way that um, they envisioned when they when Ignatiev wrote things like, you know, Empire Light or the American Empire, the Burden, right, which is a specific reference to Kipling. But at the same time, I see in them the same discursive mechanisms that I see at work in most liberal internationalist 
foreign policy establishment discourse about America in the world today. So they they are extreme cases in that they use the word empire, but the discursive universe in which they frame their arguments are shockingly similar to things that, um, you know, John Eikenberry would say. What was it about this post-September 11th moment that was so conducive to these sorts of apologias? You, you write that they tend to emerge during panics over imperial decline, whether after September 11th in the U.S. or in the U.K. a century ago. What is it about the fear of decline that this is all responding to that it might offer the promise of of resolving? Well, I think what's so interesting about these moments is that <laughs> the deflective impulse in these liberal um, imperialist visions of the world. And and again, I'm in that I want to include the vast majority of people in the foreign policy establishment in America today. But within that is this absolute unwillingness to look at the relationship between what the imperial state does and then the kinds of politics to which it has to respond. So politics that, you know, the fact that the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East might have had something to do with laying the groundwork for terrorist violence. Um, this is complete cognitive dissonance for an entire cadre of people and their world visions. And so what they need to do then is to really double down on the kind of what is going to keep our hope alive about liberalism. So for Ignatiev and for Ferguson in particular, the real fixation was on keeping people from looking too closely because if they looked at that violence too closely and they lost their nerve, then that is what would cause civilization to collapse. And so you have to constantly reassure people that in fact, the, all of the things that we believe about ourselves, that we are good people, that we don't torture, that that the rule of law always works well, that even though there was something, you know, that unforeseen might have happened once and, and the U.S. might have made some bad friends in its choices of dictators, that dictators and its choices of friends, that um, that it's all okay. So these are like in a way, I talk about Ferguson, I call him the um, the empire whisperer, because I, he really is sort of there kind of, I in, I, he envisions himself kind of next to the polity as it's about to jump off the edge into chaos, saying, it's okay, it's okay, don't look down there, just keep looking at me, just keep looking over here, I'm going to keep reassuring you that everything you believe about your country and yourself is true. And I think decline, fear of decline, just sort of exacerbates that dynamic in a way that brings it into kind of sharp and toxic focus. Ferguson is fascinating and, and totally bewildering. He argues that amid constant chaos, that empire is constantly at risk of coming undone. One moment of self-doubt and it's over. Does this notion for Ferguson that crisis is actually the general condition of empire, is its function for him to obscure the sense that he's actually experiencing this acute panic over imperial decline, that that's what he's motivated by, and in doing so, absolving him also of, of having to identify any causal factors for the present crisis of empire, if, if crisis is just the general condition of empire? Yeah, no, it's it's I think that's exactly right. I think you 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 hit it on the on the head. 
it's and you see this in Ignatiev too. You see it in Kagan. You see it in almost all again of contemporary liberal uh, apologists for the liberal world order. It's this fixation on crisis that we are always on the brink of the world falling apart. And in fact, the only thing which keeps the world falling apart is uh, from falling, falling apart is the American liberal world order, American-led liberal world order. And without that, then, you know, you'd have these horrifying and absolutely inconceivable alternative orders, which like Russia or China. And so therefore, we never have any time to do the thing that would actually make it possible to reflect on um, the causes of the con- the contemporary moment, right? So if we're always acting, Ignatiev is the worst this way. Ignatiev's like, you know, we there is no time to think about anything. We, what we have to do is we have to bomb Syria because that's the humanitarian thing to do and that will save us. And Ferguson, is it's similar. At Kagan, it's the core of his being is always that the U.S. is, is our restraint is what keeps us from invade, doing the kinds of invasions that we should be doing. In fact, his sort of the way he talks about um, the invasion of Sicily but the Athenian invasion of Sicily as if it like existed in the same moment as the American invasion of Iraq is quite amazing. And there's this great article in the New Yorker a couple of years ago where they said, you know, it's the, he's the Oliver North of ancient Athens. Like if we just had a few more triremes, we could, you know, we could really get that sucker. So there's a way in which like they're the, the they exist. And I think this is what liberalism in this form, in this moment has become, which is like a constant fending off of the fear of decline and a constant imagining of a world conditioned on all sides by crisis so that all you can ever do is act and there's no reflection, no the capacity for the thing that liberals always say that they do well, which is reason and have dialogue and listen to people, all of that is out of the window. There's only this current moment over and over and over again. Which is interesting, given that all of them say that it's liberal society's capacity for reflection, or in Ignatieff's case, the liberal society's necessity for for struggling through and reasoning through difficult decisions that make good liberal character when in that's what they believe in theory but in practice they both detest or and insist that there's no time for any sort of critical dissent right and it's not even that they detest i think they don't think about it i think they actually in their minds are good listening dialogical liberals like they really do believe that about themselves so if there's like a and that is is in of itself a deflective strategy. Like, I, can I just tell you about this thing I did uh, Thursday night, which was I was asked to debate at the Cambridge Union, and the the House the the proposition was liberal. This House believes that liberalism has failed us, and so I was the only woman out of six. And um, basically, the guy they paired me with is this. Tory um, former advisor to, I mean, it was insane. It was just an insane <laughs> thing, right? But um, so I went through and I talked about, look, the thing is, there is no such thing as liberalism. What there is are people 
who do things in the name of liberalism, and that there are some good ideas out there attached to liberalism, which I can relate to as a democratic socialist, but there's all kinds of horrible things in the history of liberalism that are appalling. And so what we have to do is look at what liberalism does, and what liberalism does in our contemporary era, and historically, I'd argue, is deflect. And so I went through and I gave through all these examples there's deflection by, you know, don't look over here, don't look, look over there. So don't look at that drone strike. Look at, you know, this human rights convention. And then there's this thing that they do where it's, um, okay, yes, invading other people's governments, that's a bad thing. But in the long run, liberals have been really good about this stuff. And then there's the who we are narrative. And then there's the, well, you know, if not us, then who? What, you want China or you want Bernie or you want Trump? And so I didn't, the the one I didn't get to in that debate was the other thing that they always do, which is, well, you know, we really just agree. Everything you want is a thing I want too. And you're like, okay, we all agree. And then they go out and, and, and then there's an invasion and somehow that slides off the back and we never hear about it. So as soon as this debate was over, everybody just said, wow, isn't that great? We all agree. And I thought like, wait a minute, you just pulled another one on me. Like there's like this endless, there is no there there to this kind of logic. There is only a sense that we are the kind of people that listen and are curious and reflect and are self-critical, and then we just don't. And so at the the end, not a single one of them asked me a question. They went straight back to talking about internal Cambridge-Oxbridge cricket, yada, yada, whatever it is the democracy talks about. And I thought, this is liberalism. We just had this conversation where you guys talked about how liberalism is the only intellectual and political worldview able to rationally open up and listen to the world fairly. And as soon as the cameras are off, you're talking to each other about which college you were at. And it was astonishing. And and I thought, okay, you know, it's really hard to break through a hegemonic wall of deflection that is so thick that people cannot even see what they're doing. Like, I don't believe these people are bad people. I don't believe John Eikenberry's a bad person. I just think he, that he's delusional. <laughs> because it's almost like if you sit with liberalism too long, this in its particular form, right? You lose the capacity to to actually make historical and political connections. You, it is a post factual mode of being. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at some of the historical methodologies at work here, you can see where that leads. Ferguson argues that we have to understand imperial history to forthrightly understand that we are an empire. But then he also says, borrowing heavily from Hayek, that understanding why things have gone so wrong in this world is just impossible because the world is so irreducibly complex that you can't really determine causality. And so, quote, being hated is what happens to dominant empires. Meanwhile, Ferguson wants K through 12 history curricula to present a, quote, grand narrative of Western ascent to cure that potentially fatal crisis of imperial confidence, this sort of 1776 project. Exactly. Yeah. Of sorts. Does Ferguson care about history at all? Or is this all a Straussian noble lie? Oh, you know, I can't even guess at that guy's motives. But 
what is clear in his reading of history and in Kagan's as well is that they want us to learn from history, but they only want us to learn particular lessons. And so there's a lot of work that has to be done to curate those lessons while at the same time presenting a kind of, again, veneer of openness and reflection. Um, and my book is largely about just the depths and like breadth of and complexity of the rhetorical strategies that go into squaring that circle. Let's get into the the British imperialists and how they tried to square those sorts of circles. You write that by the early 20th century, imperial apologists faced a bunch of different challenges to defending empire in conventional ways. There was the imposition of racial segregation in the American South and in a newly unified South Africa, which gave a certain type of brazen racism a bad reputation. There was the aftermath of the Boer War in South Africa, the rise of nationalist anti-colonial politics in India, Ireland, Egypt. And then really critically, and you referenced this briefly earlier, German imperial expansion, which you write forced British liberals to, quote, adequately explain for themselves and for the public the difference between racist and expansionist German imperialism and a British imperialism grounded in racial individuality and the growth of freedom. How did this all come together as you write to create a, quote, environment in which the old liberal imperialist nostrums of progress and civilizational superiority were no longer as effective in convincing skeptics of the benevolence of the British imperial mission. How did that context emerge in Edwardian imperial Britain? And how did these intellectuals you're writing about deal with that? Well, I mean, it emerged out of the the conditions that you just talked about, which was the changing, both the changing sort of nature of the global politics, the rise of the U.S. As, as, and Germany as, as important powers, the rise of Japan. This is, these are, um, there's a sense among this group that a certain kind of greatness of Britain is both declining and at the same time that it can't be couched in what we know of when we think about like progressive liberal narratives about imperial or developmental logic, that you can't, that civilizational narratives don't work as well anymore. So John Stuart Mill's understanding of kind of infant nations that just needed to be dragged into modernity. Um, right now they're in, you know, they're in Chakrabarty's words, waiting in the waiting room of history. That no longer worked when there were enough liberals in the metropole who were increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that they might be racists, right? Which just sounds strangely similar today to today in some ways. And so what these guys did was to think through, I argue, a bunch of different philosophical, discursive understandings of British liberalism that could make sense out of that, the fear of appearing racist and also solve what is a their, their basic temporal problem, which is that you can keep promising you, the your colonies that eventually they'll be able to grow up and big states like you um, independent on the world stage and not giving it to them for only so long, right? Like, and this is around a time when people are in India and in Egypt are taking 
Britain seriously at its word that at some point this stuff they're saying about liberalism will in fact apply to them. And so these guys have to come up with a way of saying, no, it doesn't apply to you, but not because we're racist. And so and not so they come up with a variety of different ways of figuring that out. So one I argue is to kind of redefine what liberal freedom means in a way that takes it out of time and that makes it sort of always again in in a variety of ways either through a, a narrative of identity that this is just who we are essentially as a people or locating it in an in an ancient location that actually we are, we are inheriting this from Athens or really like spinning these narratives about organic wholes then this is a time when liberals are really interestingly attached to a language of organicism um which somehow explains that people are really equal but they don't in fact entirely all have equal status so it's a really interesting hodgepodge of ways of spinning the the sort of basic narrative that we are promising these things which we are unwilling and potentially unable to fulfill and so we're going to come up with a way where we can still believe in ourselves and not feel conflicted about it just to stress that india posed a really particular problem for these imperial apologists you write quote whatever solutions these liberals proposed to the imperial problem had to stress india's necessary role in the future empire and avoid alienating sympathetic elites in india while simultaneously couching this argument in a manner that would effectively exclude most Indians from practices of democratic citizenship without using the German-sounding language of racial superiority to justify that exclusion. And Indians were more than three-quarters of the entire imperial population, so that was quite a pickle for them. It was a huge pickle. And what makes them different from these imperial federationists, people like Seeley from the end of the 19th century, was that those federationists thought that you could have a kind of united commonwealth um, and that was oriented around Anglo notions of freedom, but it was only the white populations. It was the white dominions, right? And that you could just like get rid of India and it wouldn't be a problem. But by the time you get to the early 20th century, these guys are fully aware that the vast majority of the wealth for the empire comes from India and that it absolutely that there is no way to to maintain what is like the the world financial dominance of Britain without India. And so but at the same time and they're oh my god they're obsessed with demographics. So the round table produces these um you know year after year populate graphic population statistics where they're really really worried about the rise of non-white populations in the British dominions and migration within those. So they're essentially they're worried about that. They're also worried about the fact that they they cannot alienate elites in India and they who are and many of whom are in London at the time, essentially, again, like work asking the the British to um, be true to their their basic commitment to making them full partners in the Commonwealth. Um, So it's a real you're right. It is a real pickle and it can only be done by coming up with a very weird understanding of what is a kind of nascent multiculturalism. So like really the the round table has so much of the trappings of a kind of contemporary neoliberal or 
liberal version of a kind of multicultural society, right? Because that was, they said that one of the things that makes Britain great in comparison to Germany is how multicultural we are. But then they would constantly emphasize that that means that everybody had a place, right? So it wasn't, everybody is equal in the Commonwealth, but some people are more equal than others. So it is really, um, it goes round and round on this. And sometimes the sort of deflective whirl of this discourse is so much that you just kind of um, say, ah, I, I, I'm getting lost in the liberal haze. <laughs> and, and I actually saw this at work when Ignat to like skip ahead a century, right? When Ignatiev gave the, um, <laughs> the graduation speech at Whitman when I was there at Whitman College, he gave this appalling speech right after, that was where that quotation comes from, right after Abu Ghraib, and gave this, and half of the audience of well-heeled Northwest crunchy liberals jumped up and cheered, right? And so it's like, it's the same kind of like word cloud of, of liberal verbiage that works to deflect anybody from saying, hey, wait a minute, that thing that happened was really bad. You know, maybe that- He was like a minister of- liberalism ab absolving the the democratic parents at Whitman College of their complicity <laughs> in illiberalism. It's exactly <laughs> right. Like... You, 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 you can feel bad <laughs> Thank about you, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> you can feel bad about Abu Ghraib, but don't feel bad about who you are. Don't feel that bad about it. Because actually feeling bad about it in Ignatieff's framework is what makes you a good liberal, but don't feel that bad about it. Because actually immediately the second you start feeling a little bad about it you should be gratified that you're going through this shallow emotional process that makes you a good right, liberal exactly right yeah liberalism is really is it's the uh, the idea that there's been something coherent called liberalism since Locke right or as the straussians would have us believe right since play, you know the ancient uh, uh, ancient athenians right like is just it's, that's ludicrous, right? So people didn't actually start calling themselves liberals until the 19th century, until the late 19th century. And then it is always from the very beginning, particularly in a British context, liberalism is always evolving in these co-constituting ways with imperial expansion. Like there really is never a moment when those two things are not going hand in hand. So the tension that seems to be there and that really is does effectively feel to be there between a liberal commitment to freedom, equality, and sovereign autonomy is actually always been in, that, that, that tension has been there since forever, right? And I think one of the things that, that contemporary liberals want to do is cons consistently kind of share that past that constituting past from whatever liberalism is as a political philosophy or a political practice. And I want to argue pretty consistently that, and, and, and I make this a lot, you, you can't do that. And if you do that, then all of these internal tensions fall away. And we, we don't actually get a clear picture of the way that these, that liberalism and its illib and illiberal you know, doppelganger, have worked together hand in hand since people have been calling themselves liberal. You write that the round table departed from other democratic theorists who embraced exclusion simply by excluding 
the others, the excluded others from citizenship. But instead, the roundtable argued that everyone was a citizen, even though only a fraction would govern. Why didn't they just say to Indians, you can't vote because you're not citizens, so you don't get representation in our proposed imperial parliament. That's for white South Africans, Canadians, and Australians. Um, because they couldn't do that because they would ha- couldn't admit they were racist, right? So by that point in time, to be a racist was to be German. <laughs> so like, there's a way in which they couldn't make that explicit racial argument, which doesn't mean that they didn't use racial arguments when it suited them. And their their works are peppered with you know terms like child race, undeveloped race. Like they felt that they clearly were fearful of it, but they wouldn't build their image of what the Commonwealth was supposed to be on it. Because if you did that, then you were the wrong kind of empire. Because again, what's interesting is they're actually having to deal with a with a growing number of anti-imperial activists, liberal activists in Britain, right? And they're they're gonna have to figure out a way of like explaining the project in a way that doesn't um, ruffle those people's feathers. And it's really interesting that Jan Smuts, who is a absolute dyed-in-the-wool racist to the core, is also the golden boy of, like, liberal activists in the, early, like, during World War One. I. I mean, he hangs out with all these women suffragettes, um, they think he's just this really kooky guy from the colonies and that he's so wise. He describes himself as a, quote, barbarian from the outer marches exactly. of the empire, which makes his racism seem just sort of like, oh, realistic. You you liberals in London wouldn't wouldn't get what it's like out here in the darkest right, Africa. Right. <laughs> um, and he so there's a way in which he is able to package a really pretty grotesque form of South African racism in a way that does not trouble a good number of sort of liberal public intellectuals and activists of the time. Well, and interestingly, Smuts has what, at least to a contemporary reader, would seem like a pretty peculiar theory to explain hierarchy and domination in the world and empire and colonialism. He believed in what he called holism. And if I read you right, he coined the term? Yeah, he coined the term. That's remarkable because obviously it's a idea that goes on to guide things like New Age thinking later on. But it was for him this peculiar theory of organic and evolving civilizational order and racialized hierarchy. What, what did he mean by holism? And how did that reflect the politics of, of South Africa at the time? So by by holism, it it had an evolutionary character to it, right? So it had he ha, he definitely believed that civilizations were moving and evolving in particular directions, but as they were doing that, they were becoming more internally integrated, and the world was becoming more holistically bound together. But key for him, in a similar way to the way that the Roundtable imagined the world, that. Ex, that exterior of holism did not mean that in within that whole there were not hierarchies. So things were bound together by a whole, but they weren't equal parts. So you can see how this really would work for a South African who at the time is trying to imagine 
what it's going to look like to have an internally always othered population of majority Black Africans um, and to imagine them to be both part of your sort of whole a sense of what the whole nation was and yet always subservient to the whole, you know to to the white population he had a very interesting idea of racial unity but it was racial unity between britons and afrikaans and um so there's a way in which jan smuts is a kind of classic late 19th century evolutionary thinker who then is confronted with the fact that the problem with evolution is that time means eventually you'll have to provide some people with citizenship. And so he comes up with this alternative way of understanding a people that is um, both self-contained and internally variegated, right? Self-contained and internally hierarchical. And it is really, it's quite remarkable the way that he talks about it and the way that he then uses it as a platform for legitimating all kinds of things, not just in South Africa, but the very wording of the mandate system comes out of Smuts's writing on this, and you can see his holism working throughout that. Yeah, his ideas about holism and his proposal for the mandate system directly influenced Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, and in fact, it was one of the amazing things is that the way that these British foreign office guys, who by that time were the, a lot of the roundtable thinkers, so Philip Kerr, Zimmern, and Smuts, they, they are profoundly irritated by what they see as Wilson's unwillingness to just come out and admit, admit that he's an imperialist, right? So they know that what he wants is a world where people uh, like Guatemala does not have the same kind of power in the as the U.S. in a new League of Nations. But he can't, for some reason, just won't admit that other states need to be colonized, right? And so they have to come up with this language to convince him that really what he's talking about is is national liberation, but it isn't actually. So that the League of Nations is going to be built on this, on the idea of sovereignty, but that really doesn't mean sovereignty. And Smuts gives him this amazing language for being able to sign off on it. Like at the end of the day, because Wilson is a profound racist. Wilson has a, totally understands the world in terms of the global color line, but he just can't bring himself to talk in this language of, um, in the same, with the same kind of ease that Smuts and Kerr and the other round tailors could. And so they give him a language and that language becomes foundational to the League of Nations. Now, the fact then that the U.S. doesn't join the League of Nations is kind of ironic because much of the way that was founded was specifically to coddle Wilson's insecurities. And Smut's entire framework, you write, helps bring about, quote, both the extension of formal imperialism into the age of internationalism, i.e. the League of Nations, and it sets the stage for the informal imperialism that followed and that carries on through today. I think most people, when they think about um, international politics, in particular the American-led liberal world order, like will go back to the post-World War II period. They'll say 1949 is really the turning point. That's when the, the world as we know it, which is this form of liberal imperialism where you have uh, American hegemony that we all accept graciously because um, we know them, because we know ourselves to be liberal democracies and the U.S. to be committed to democracy. 
um, that somehow like that's the beginning of all of this. But in fact, all of these ideas about uh, international systems, which proclaim to be about a kind of internationalist world, uh, sort of sharing of sovereign states cooperating. And all of this goes back way deeper, right? It is right there at this moment when explicit imperialists were trying to imagine a world that they could both say was cooperative and international and simultaneously imperialist. And so much of the kind of formal institutions that come out of that square that circle in ways that resonate to the, to this day, right? So Anthony Anghi's book is really good on this about the way that the sort of legal mechanisms of the mandate system set up a kind of dependency that some states would have on international bodies. Um, it has like held throughout the interwar period, through the post-war period, and actually lives on in the World Bank, right? And so there are ways in which the kind of imperialism, I guess this is the empires without imperialism, right? That starts earlier than we might imagine. That does not end with the end of formal imperialism. I mean, that does not begin with the end of formal imperialism. That starts with the discomfort of liberal imperialists in the early 20th century. Also, the mandate system is what just directly gives control of Namibia to the settler colonial dominion of South Africa, which then controls Namibia through, I think, like 1990. Oh, yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. So when Smuts was talking, he, he wasn't non-interested in the mandate system. He didn't develop the mandate system out of the goodness of his heart, although he might have had some vaunted ideas about what it meant to, um, you know, help facilitate a kind of international system that he thought looked like the British Empire. He had very clear imperial interests in Africa as did the Australians at the same time, right? They all wanted in on the mandate game. And then another key institution that, that emerges out of this period, and that I believe that, that Jessica Blatt's book focuses squarely on, is th the invention of the subfield of international relations. Right, right. And also Bob Vitalis's book. It, that this is this, and that's also, you know, what's so interesting too is that international relations as a subfield is focused entirely on sovereign states. And yet, so much of what has like shaped the discipline and shaped foreign policy discourse comes out of the legacy of empire. One key difference between now and Edwardian. Britain, is that then there were anti-imperialist nationalist movements taking off all over the place. Whereas today we're living decades after the end of this moment of third worldist leftist internationalism. How have these two contexts shaped the imperial apologists you're looking at in terms of who the British imperialists were arguing against then and how in today's context, with so little in the way of anti-imperialist politics, unfortunately, how that's shaped the arguments for imperialism in the post-9-11 U.S. You know, it's so interesting that you would frame it that way, because I think that post-9-11 imperialists, and again, by that, I mean everybody attached to the foreign policy establishment in the U.S., I, I think that there is as much fear 
as there was in the early 20th century, but it's not anti-colonial movements. It's this absolute fear of new rising powers. So the idea is that it's China, it's an, a newly empowered India, um, it's the possibility that Russia, a new empowered Russia could take over. So there, that fear of the barbarians at the gate is as acute, even though you can look around and not see the same kind of international third worldist, right, ever or proto third worldist anti-colonial movements that were taking place in the early 20th century. But their absolute fear of basically non-white people taking over the world is as strong. You reference Wendy Brown's argument that, quote, only since the Cold War have liberals given up on the promise of modern progress. What happens, Brown wonders, to the liberal mind when it ceases to imagine time in these forward terms, when it moves out of history? Why, why did the end of the Cold War lead to this dramatic shift? And what happened, as Brown asks, as a result? Well, I think Brown's wrong about that. Because, I mean, in many of the time, much of the time where I, this is one of my disagreements with Brown, which comes from the fact that I agree with her diagnoses, but disagree with her history. So she does this, a similar thing when she discusses sovereignty. I think that, so So I think she she tends to kind of fetishize the, the moment as if this has not happened before. But I think liberals in the early 20th century, prior to the end of the Cold War, were already giving up on progress. I mean, it was clearly there. They were reimagining history in these internally circling tight terms that they might have called progress, but they didn't imagine to be like temporally unfolding. They all they imagined to be a kind of fixed or holistic or um, character-driven understanding of liberal essence. And I think that's been built into the way that liberals think about global politics for a really long time. I think the end of the Cold War, the Cold War is kind of an, an interesting interregnum in all this, right? So you you have all, this is what makes the comparison between the sort of early 20th century and interwar period and today so fascinating because there's a way that the polarization of the Cold War reconfigures international politics in a way that allows for these kinds of narratives of progress to sort of exist in an untroubled way. I think what Brown is seeing is the end of maybe Cold War sort of visions of the world, but not that that in fact had an earlier history. So there's, what is it, a a paleo or a proto-liberal abandonment of progress, and that happens in the early 20th century. This is my next project is going to be on the rise and fall of of sex trafficking narratives, which follows a similar pattern, right? Because you see these sex trafficking patterns and like of which are doing work for liberals and liberal internationalists in the early 20th century completely kind of falls out of the picture until they go nuts after the fall of the Cold War. And we again have all these international fixations with sex trafficking. Um, and in both eras, they mutate into conspiracy theories and, and right-wing um, sort of visions of global politics. But there again, there's because there is a lot of work that needs to go into justifying the hegemony of sort of a liberal state, which is all powerful, but doesn't imagine that it's all powerful. And in both eras, 
both in the early 20th century with the British, but and also in the contemporary U.S., you have to make sense out of that. How can the state which calls itself liberal actually have all the power in the world? And squaring that circle is kind of the essence of liberalism in both eras. In terms of what happened in the 90s, you write, quote, something began to shift among political pundits and IR scholars in the early 1990s following the end of the Cold War. During this period, in the sudden absence of all the certainties associated with living in a bipolar world, key observers of world politics began to argue more forcefully for the benefits of a liberal interventionism that often looked, for all intents and purposes, like imperialism. Kagan founded the Project for a New American Century along with Dick Cheney, Elliot Abrams, Francis Fukuyama, and Paul Wolfowitz in 1997. But it was after 9-11, really, that they began to decisively reshape American foreign policy. How did this sort of thinking in the 90s post-Cold War moment lay the groundwork for the politics of the war on terror that emerged after 9-11, a trajectory, interestingly enough, very neatly encapsulated in the trajectory of Ignatieff's work. And and how how was it that the end of the Cold War left so many Americans feeling simultaneously so triumphant about their power and so anxious about the fr- that power's fragility? Well, I think it's there's a lot of things that's going on. So it's not just that the Project for a New American Century is developing. There's also this logic that's, again, that Ignatiev is very involved in, which is the development through these international organizations and think tanks and eventually the UN on on intervention, right? On in particular the the responsibility to protect doctrine. And a lot of this is the response of, you know, as a as a response to first to Somalia, then to Kosovo, and that real sense that there should be some way of legitimizing American power that makes explicit intervention more necessary and more obvious. And so there's these different, in in some ways, different paths to getting to that. So you have the neocons, and then you have the liberal internationalists. There's, and there's been a lot of work on this by by NIR on the fact that, you know, the the liberal internationalists and neocons, the Eikenberries and the Ignatievs look a lot like um, the Kagans and the Cheneys in the sense that they both have a kind of vaunted sense of the U.S. imperial mission, although they wouldn't describe it thus. And after 9-11, that is when it all just sort of makes more sense to them. This is like an, an ongoing mission. This is a mission without end. All of them support something called the war on terror, terror, which is itself a term which is ineradicable, right? You cannot, I mean, what the hell is terror? It's not even a war on terrorism, right? This is, it gives a kind of renewed life to a sense of mission. Of course, then Iraq happens, and then there's all the blowback from Iraq. And you would think then that that would bring about, again, some at least a modicum of humility and a modicum of reflection on the part of the people who are involved in the Princeton Project on National Security and um, Council on Foreign Relations, but it doesn't, right? It just makes them double down on 
the fact that the U.S. still has to maintain its primacy because without us, everything falls apart. There has to be some kind of legitimating narrative that give, makes it possible for the U.S. to intervene when it's necessary to save the world from, demo, from the you know demise of democracy. And there's a this sort of post 9-11 era, it, it really does crystallize the convergence of the foreign policy establishment, which, you know, Ben Rhodes famously calls the blob. It isn't, it's not, it actually exists, right? It is a monoculture. So I'm a fellow at the Quincy Institute, which you might have heard of, which is actually this unbelievably weird and a fabulous project that is a totally anathema in the grand scheme of foreign policy think tanks and that it's about restraint. Um, and people from a variety of different, actually ideological, but also sort of intellectual and political perspectives are united in this goal of trying to force some kind of conversation and real reflection on the status of the U.S. and the world. The culture of the liberal world order is so tightly woven and so deeply um, self-reinforcing and self-serving that it makes it, again, impossible to just make connections between history and political reality. In the 1990s, Ignatieff made his case for liberal interventionism, and it was imperialist, but it was also you note, it emphasized empathy with the other. And in that case, post-Cold War nationalists in places like the Balkans. But post 9-11, his writings render the, the barbarian portions of the globe just totally unintelligible, understandable only as a, quote, vacuum of chaos and massacre ruled by evil and apocalyptic nihilism whose hatreds cannot be understood. And you write, quote, what differentiates both Ignatieff and Ferguson from their Edwardian progenitors is the extent to which each explicitly acknowledges that liberal imperialism requires the violation of liberal norms for liberal imperial ends and the way in which both are willing to embrace such violations as an affirmation of the liberal state's identity. What was it about the politics of 9-11 that explains this embrace of illiberalism that you didn't find in amongst the Edwardian imperial apologists? Well, I think, so for one thing, the Edwardian imperial apologists didn't really, they just didn't need to deal with it in some ways, right? They they sort of inhabited the contradiction in a way that um, was just easier for them. I think largely there wasn't, an, I mean, it was a different media culture, but they they could like let massacres kind of slide off their backs and then continue to say that Britain was in fact about the liberal rule of law. Their their big strategy was usually to just foreclose that discussion. So like I have a, I talk a bit about the way that the round table in their very lengthy history, 700 page history of the British Commonwealth, <laughs> right? Uh, which is, a, which is a justification for empire in the extreme, but they spend a paragraph 
on the history of slavery and of the British involvement in slavery, right? The British were involved with slavery for 300 years. You know, at some point in time, I think that they were responsible for over a third of the slaves through the Middle Passage. I mean, it's just that that, that slavery was absolutely essential for the establishment of the industrial economy in Britain in ways which you wouldn't have the Industrial Revolution if it weren't for British slavery. And it got in a 700-page description of of Britain's past, it got... A paragraph, and the way that they talk about it was to say, "Well, yes, this very bad thing happened, but you know what? the The thing that makes us liberal is that we got out of it, and we were some of the first abolitionists." Moving on, right? So there's that there's that moving on part where we acknowledge it was bad and we move on, which is sort of the way that, just as an aside, that slavery kind of often functions in American popular mythology where the ending of slavery is what matters the most because that's what signals our country's goodness. Right. It's it's, it's the absolutely similar tactic. And it's a way that, that states that actually imagine themselves to be liberal from the beginning have to kind of deal with the fact that they're they're not, right? So you can only imagine slavery as a story of redemption and a kind of coming to fruition of who we always were. That it was this thing that happened, but we moved on. And that's the way those those narratives work. What Ignatiev does in particular is to pair what he is like a, a hard-headed realism with like a liberal sense of uh, all of the good things that we like about liberalism, right? So our commitment to um, to human rights, toleration, um, just a general sense. He wants those two things to work together. And this is where his logic of liberalism as a fighting creed comes in, which is that liberals have to be willing to fight to save the world from illiberalism. But, and this is where the story gets complicated, Ignatiev is constantly talking about how hard it is to do bad things, that it's really painful to torture people because it makes you feel bad and it makes you violate the things that you hold dearest. But the truth is that we really know what kind of a polity we are because we feel bad about torturing people. So in this really tortured understanding of torture, right, Ignatiev sets up a way in which the American state gets to both be liberal and anti-torture, torture people in Abu Ghraib and elsewhere because that's necessary, but then also know itself to be liberal because it felt really bad about torturing people. Do you see how torqued that is? But that is literally his argument, um, which is, and it is not, I mean, it is, it's fascinating because it comes across as a kind of liberal anguish, right? He's always anguished that we have to do these things. It is truly terrible that we have to invade Iraq. It is truly terrible that we might have to bomb Syria. And we feel terrible about it, which is how you know we're liberal. But they don't feel that (laughs) terrible about it. You write that it's the most sort of cost-free and superficial version of tragedy imaginable. It is the most cost-free vert because the thing about tragedy is you're supposed to learn lessons from it. I mean, every Greek tragedy is also, at the end of the day, it's too late to learn a lesson, right? Like, um, like if there's no, you can't learn that, in fact, um, you know, you, you slept with your mother and you killed your father because it's too late. By that time, it's too late. But for, for Ignatiev, there's a way in which it's never too late. 
that we can keep making mistakes. We can keep torturing people. We can keep invading other countries. We can keep, keep violating the very foundational ideas that this a country or that America is supposed to stand for. And yet at the end of the day, we don't have to learn any lessons from that. We can go home at night and feel good about ourselves because we felt really bad when we did it. It hurt to torture people. I don't mean to make light of this, but it's really hard sometimes to make this argument without being derisive because it is such utter bullshit. And yet my point always with dealing with people who are full of shit is that they have so much power. And I try and tell my colleagues, um, and particularly my political theory colleagues who are like, why the heck are you why would you write about Ignatiev? Like that guy is just utterly a bloviator, but he has an extraordinary amount of power in a popular cultural sense, as does Ferguson. Again, like you posted that thing on Twitter, Dan, about how, you know, you couldn't believe that he had said that Marx supported wife swapping. <laughs> and, and that's why Marxism never took off amongst the working classes. Exactly. And then all of these people responded like, what? You know, I didn't, well, the people, people don't know that because the people you and I hang out with, like lefty intellectuals, don't read Ferguson. But again, your mother is picking that up in an airport bookstore and thinking that he's a legitimate historian because he's from Stanford. And he gets away with saying things like this. Ignatiev gets away with saying things like this because it's right there in plain sight in the op-ed section of the New York Times, right? And I think as, as left intellectuals, we have to get into the weeds with these people's absolute bizarre theories because it's that level of convolution which enables this country to continue to act that way it does in the world. This is Sarah Jaffe and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism by Harsho Alia. Border and Rule is an urgent global account of the migration crisis and the function of borders across political, social, cultural, and economic systems. Harsho Aliyah disrupts easy explanations for the migrant and refugee crisis, instead showing them to be the inevitable outcome of conquest, capitalist globalization, and climate change generating mass dispossession worldwide. Border and Rule explores a number of seemingly disparate global geographies with shared logics of border rule that displace, immobilize, criminalize, exploit, and expel migrants and refugees. Border Rule is a clarion call for revolution. The book includes a foreword from renowned scholar Robin D.G. Kelly and an afterword from acclaimed activist academic Nick Estes. As Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States, said of the book, This indispensable, deeply researched, and beautifully written book is the first and most in-depth global analysis of borders and immigration, wars and displacement, imperialism and Western white nationalism. 
always with her ear to the ground and paying close attention to the people whose lives are wrecked or lost, while Leah demands action and offers real solutions. Border and rule, global migration, capitalism, and the rise of racist nationalism by Harsha Walia. Out now from Haymarket Books. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Ferguson. His historical method is to pose counterfactuals as though he's a sci-fi author. You write, quote, Civilization, a recent book by that he wrote, Civilization, with its span of 500 years, limited list of secondary sources for citation, but extensive-looking bibliography, which claims to have captured the essence of Western civilization in six killer apps, is the most outstanding example of Ferguson's methodology to date. And then you also write, quote, Ferguson's status as a Harvard professor has allowed him significant sway with the American right during a decade that has seen a significant decline in intellectual conservatism. And you wrote that before Trump was elected. What do you make of the just utter mediocrity of the conservative intelligentsia? And what does that then reveal about the role of conservative intellectuals in a moment when they seem to have lost any meaningful influence over the right? in the United States. My point is that I read Ferguson as a conservative intellectual, but I also read Ferguson as a dyed-in-the-wool liberal who will make whatever arguments are necessary to further a neoliberal agenda. And so in some ways, I think he'll be fine. He will weather the sort of uh, decline, already declining futures of the conservative intelligentsia because He's a magpie and because he doesn't really have a soul. Sorry, that's way um, ruder than it should sound, but I really do think he has a vision of a neoliberal world that he wants and he is willing to tell whatever historical narratives are necessary to get there. So I think there's a way that Trump, you know, at the end of the day would would have been so nice, right? What we all would have loved for those of us who are critics of American foreign policy, it would have been, or, you know, critics of America in general, it would have been great if Trump's ascendance in 2016 had caused this kind of, oh, shit moment and uh, a big chunk of the foreign policy establishment and maybe some mainstream Democrats would have said, oh, my God, you know, what is going on here? What do we need to look at? How might, in fact, we need to refigure the way that we imagine this sort of goal, uh, the, the goals of America in the world or the sort of sense of what the party is about. But obviously it didn't, right? I mean, it that was, Trump was elected and the liberal sort of, uh, I don't know, chattering classes just went into a kind of deflection on overdrive, right? That that was the response to Trump. And again, I can- That Russia, that- that Russia did it. That Russia us. did that it, it was right? an, That it was an externally imposed thing rather than just coming from deep within the bowels of American politics and society. Right. Or, or that Russia did it or that it couldn't be possible that people who voted for Obama might vote for Trump because potentially things that they really needed, like an actual public option never materialized, right? That this, in fact, that there might be some relationship to a long history of 
democratic obeisance to the neoliberal agenda. On an international level, I think, again, Eikenberry is the most striking here. So he had this piece that came out in 2017 in Foreign Affairs where he said, um, you know, and he called it the plot against American foreign policy. He was like, you know, this is not how the end of the liberal world order was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be some, you know, revisionist power from outside bringing us down. And now a revisionist power sits in the Oval Office. Like, this isn't supposed, and there's this kind of like, he's clearly his mind is blown because Trump is saying things aloud like, you know, when he's interviewed about Putin and, you know, they ask him, how do you feel about the fact that Putin is a killer? And Trump's like, well, you know, we're killers too. Everybody like, everybody's a killer, right? He basically says the U.S. is an empire and I'm just a big bully. And so like the fact is that America is an empire and there was always the possibility of a Trump, right? But they were always so adamant about the need for vigilance against threats from the outside. But in the end, the threat came from inside their very own American right. Right. From their very own American right. And and then saying things aloud that no one's supposed to say aloud. Right. You're not actually supposed to call other countries shithole countries. You're not supposed to admit that we could actually annihilate other countries with our, you know, our nuclear button. Right. This is stuff you're not supposed to say out loud. And yet Trump was just in his weird Tourette's like way, kind of vomiting up all these revealing facts about American power. There's always the possibility that you could have had a Trump as the commander in chief. But it's the utter hubris of liberals that, in fact, this country is too rational, too committed to all of the best ideals of the rule of law, that that could never happen. And therefore, it's okay that we, in fact, have 800 military bases and spend a trillion dollars a year on the security budget. That's all fine. It's okay that we have this obscene nuclear arsenal because we are reasonable liberal people. And when clearly the population decides that they don't want a reasonable liberal person, they want this guy who acts like an emperor, then you're really in trouble because then the kind of reality of that power and the the actual, you know, embodiment of it in Trump come sort of crashing together. And that's what's made this last four years so uncanny, right? It actually... It's uncanny in the sense that there's this way in which Trump reflects everything everybody always knew and didn't look at. And you would have liked to have thought that then that would have brought about a moment of national reckoning. I mean, maybe it has in some corners. I think it definitely has amongst a certain cadre of the liberal left. I don't know. It certainly hasn't in the Democratic Party. And it certainly hasn't among the foreign policy establishment. So... The problem, again, from to my mind, is that the sort of the shell around that has accrued around liberalism, that deflective shell, makes it really impossible to do the kind of reflective work that needs to happen to change things. And I, and I worry really deeply that we're kind of that we're beyond a point where we can do that. How does this disavowal of of imperial liberalism compare to and relate to the disavowals underpinning nationalism 
And how have these two forms of identity in both Britain and the U.S., how have they related to each other? Because it turns out that it's it's also a challenge to fit the metropole into the empire, just not a challenge that these imperial apologists are thinking very much about. So like, how did the relationship between imperialism and nationalism, does that help us understand where Trump and Brexit come from and where they tapped into this this upside down world in the U.S. at least, where Americans are portrayed as the ones who are being colonized by global elites, this sort of sense that really starts to blow up in the 1990s, this simultaneously triumphalist and deeply panicked moment when the unipolar world gives way to fears of of black helicopters, the, the sense that Americans are being colonized by by global elites who are either extracting people's wealth or more macabrely children's adrenochrome, and also colonized by third world migrants who are engaged in either a reconquista or a great replacement. Do the disavowals of imperialism lay the groundwork for a nationalist reaction from the metropole that figures the the imperial people, the people of the imperial center, as the true victims of empire? Yes, that's exactly what it does, right? It does, and it does that over and over again. So, so let me give an example of Ignatiev's like response in 2014, 2015 to what was happening in Syria. For Ignatiev, because the world moves in a constant state of crisis, at that moment, the crisis for him was sort of what he saw as a, a crisis of order. And the, the world order in, in the Middle East was breaking down. And he gives this, he has this astonishing quote in this New York Times piece where he says, you know, the peace that was brought about by Sykes-Picot is finally coming to a fiery denouement, you know, like that. So, okay, that is the, uh, that's the obscenity of disavowal, right? So Sykes-Picot was this, and you probably know this, right? The treaty that was signed secretly during World War I between the British and the French in which they divided up the Middle East, that they had these states which had, or these, you know, territories in the former Ottoman Empire which had fought with them in World War I and, they, and to whom they had promised independence and instead they divided them up as mandated territories, created these borders which were artificial and in which which they actively encouraged, you know, all kinds of sort of ethnic violence and which they firebombed, right? The first use of aerial chem- chemical weapons in the world is by the British in 1920 in Baghdad, right? Which sets up like this whole very complicated historical uh, trajectory in which the insecurities of the states that were created by the Sykes-Picot Agreement would then lead to the destabilization of the entire region. And Michael Ignatiev can only see that, oh my God, Sykes-Picot, like there was a peace there and now the world is falling apart. It is like the obscenity of disavowal. There cannot be any moment in which liberals of this ilk look at the world and say, you know what? That decision that the other liberals at that point in time made has contributed to the current moment, right? There's, that is constantly being effaced. That's constantly being erased. And so 
All you ever have is innocent liberal states waking up and being like, oh my God, everybody hates us. Why do they hate us, right? So if that's the narrative that liberals have ginned up all of these years, and it is, right, then of course these backlashes would take on the appearance of like nationalist reaction. So in this country, in Britain where I live, it's the most bizarre Brexit is both about a kind of retrenched little England and some kind of nostalgia for the empire, but not really fully understood. And the way that liberals will finger wag at Brexiteers, they say, oh my gosh, you are imperial nostalgists and you're anti-globalization. And there's no moment in their minds when they actually stop and pause to reflect on the fact that the first global economy in the world is created by the British Empire, and the British Empire is a liberal project. So the constant erasure of the past, for God's sakes, just like, I'm not even a a social scientist, right? But cause and effect, people, like there is no cause and effect for the, like the way they've so consistently obscured cause and effect with this sort of gauzy language of who liberals always are and are always just becoming has led to the contemporary reactionary moment. Like, they are responsible for it, to my mind, which doesn't mean that horrid racists and conservatives aren't also responsible. But, like, I think the deep roots of this go to a kind of liberal imperial smugness that makes it impossible possible to just see the world otherwise and to make connections. At the end of the day, for me, where the political project on the left has to be, it has to be both the attentiveness and the fostering of alternative conceptions of politics that we see coming out of all of these different global and local spaces. But it also has to be this relentless pushing through, pushing back, puncturing that that kind of deflection that will not let liberals and liberal peoples look at themselves. And to clarify, when you say when you say liberal, is it with a capital L that would include neoconservatives? Oh yeah. So from to my mind, I, I mean so the basic sense of what American values are. And you can get Kagan Ignatiev and Ferguson in a room, and they will all say that they believe in freedom, human rights, the rule of law, openness, multilateral, you know, organization. So these are things that people on the right and the left say that they that they both find foundationally American. Or in a way you could put Bush and Obama in a room together on that count. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you could put Bush and Obama together. They would be very comfortable in that space. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene recently tweeted, quote, Bush, Biden, Kerry, Hillary, and Steny conspired to push the biggest lie of the 21st century, the Iraq War, costing our country trillions of dollars and thousands of lives. Now they're showered with adoration by fake news reporters who used to be anti-war. I'm finding this fascinating because there's there's always been isolationist figures on the right, people like Ron Paul. But since Trump, you have the same sort of right wing social base that was really core to supporting Bush's war on terror, who've turned 
since then against the civilizing mission of empire. Like I'm get like the 2003 or four version of Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been attacking student anti-war protesters like me for lacking patriotism. So what accounts for this this shift in right-wing politics against the civilizing mission of of liberal empire, especially given that the new right-wing's political subjectivities have so often been formed through participation in the armed institutions of liberal empire, the military, border patrol, police. Right. So I think there's a way, again, in which the veil has been pulled off the of power. And I think the right and these and, and these figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but also this the shocking number of military person people personnel either former or current who were involved in the in the January 6th insurgency right particularly like, marines interestingly enough. exactly right so i think there's a way in which um like like this there for them a veil has been in fact lifted and what you see is American power. And for them, that seems that makes sense, right? And it is no longer an American power, which you have to rationalize in the language of a, if a not civilizing mission, then a, a mission, which is always about our, our higher ideals, you know, the, the, who we are as a people, staying true to what America is always all about. I think there's a way in which they've intuited that in fact, that's a load of crap. And, that what there is there is power. So what I've found so interesting over the last four years is trying to figure out where these sites of extra state violence end up in, in, a, in a local context, right? In an American context. And so, so on the one hand, like the number of of former sort of military professionals from all of that, you know, of, of all these veterans from all of these different branches the number who were involved in the protest at Standing Rock is really kind of amazing, right? And so that was both Native soldiers, but also just an incredible amount of veterans who came to Standing Rock. And many of them articulated their support for Standing Rock in an anti-colonial language and a language like that was hostile to a kind of oil politics that they saw when they were in Iraq, right? So that's like one, one way in which you could sort of make those kinds of imperial connections that both expose the ugliness of the state's power in the world, but then actually forms, you know, different kinds of solidarity and democratic practices that, that um, you know, that are a a politics which are solidaristic and, and uplifting. What seems to have happened with the kind of emergence of all of these military personnel in the right now is the kind of just sense for a desire for raw power and that the U.S. has, again, given it away, right? That w the problem is that something has been lost and it needs to be reclaimed. And if you think about it, so many of these... this. Why are we surprised that when we're running a program of endless war and producing all of these veterans, many of whom have been deeply dramatized, many of whom suffer from like 
of all kinds of sort of brain injuries and that we produce all of these people and then we say to them, no, really, this was all done for the good and what you need to do now is just go home and accept the fact that you can't actually afford health care. Like, why are we surprised that this would emerge in these, in this political moment, in these unmasked ways? One is a kind of unmasked right-wing reactionary ugliness. And the other maybe is potential for a kind of more importantly, like left and solidaristic future that that it has these two directions. I think we need to be talking about that. And I'm not entirely sure what to do with it, but I think it's deeply worrying and also potentially maybe deeply hopeful. One of the reasons I think it has this kind of funhouse mirror quality is because that liberal empire could not be explicitly justified in the name of domination. It was always explained as helping the world out. We support multilateral institutions like NATO. We invade Iraq to help other people because we're good. That was very explicitly how the decision to invade Iraq was justified. Bush pushed back very strongly against Islamophobic framings of the war on terror. And given how poorly it all turns out, I feel like the right-wing reaction to this crisis of empire is being made on in response to the terms in which empire was defended. (laughs) I mean, I just, it's just, it's such a strange moment, right? Where we're at this sort of nexus of everything both being cracked open in these new and revealing ways and sort of metastasizing turn to shut that down that comes out of a kind of uh, liberal turn toward order. And I think the left is in this interesting position of needing to sort of see that moment and to see both the dangers that are involved with it and to be able to like both gesture toward the necessity of exposing the ugliness of the power and also the necessity of exposing the way that you cannot, that liberal pablum will not solve this problem for us. Just saying that we are all in this together and this is not who we are, which is the common and relentless cant of the establishment, is not going to solve this problem. Well, on that point, what did you make of the invocation, this domestic invocation of this is not who we are after right-wing Trump supporters stormed the Capitol? We also heard by, you know, people who were shocked on cable news as it was happening that this is the kind of thing that's just supposed to happen in banana republics, i.e., at least implicitly, probably unconsciously, something we do to other people, not that we do to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was, but it's, it's. And I started noticing it even earlier when the COVID crisis began to sort of take shape and people in sort of New York and Seattle and in these hotbeds of where the, you know, where the pandemic was really unfolding very quickly were saying things over and over again, like, this is like the third world. This is like, I mean, it's really a sort of shocked realization of the brokenness of America's health infrastructure 
And this shocked realization that the commander-in-chief is in fact acting like a Banana Republic dictator, um, the leap that you made, Dan, which is like, this is how we do this to other people, I think the vast majority of Americans don't think that. I don't think they imagine that because they, they just don't, either they never learned because it was done, it was not actually done out in the open, or because, you know, it's the, the, the wall of deflection has kept that kind of knowledge from just filtering into our everyday lives. But I think most Americans actually don't believe that this is how the U.S. treats a vast majority or a huge sizable chunk of the population in the global South with that kind of contempt. So that language of not who we are is clearly attenuated, right? I don't know if you saw this, but there's been pushback, including in the New York Times, right? There was the, a couple of New York Times, I don't know, op-ed writers wrote a pretty strong piece that said, well, no, actually, you know, racist violence, people denying other people the vote, um, in particular, denying black people the vote and, you know, claiming that we've lost something is American as apple pie. This is who we are. I think where the next moment needs to come is there needs to, we need to globalize that awareness. Like we need to actually say, okay, this is not who we are, not only because, you know, that the legacy of, of, of chattel slavery and Jim Crow have worked in this particular way in this country and the way that settler colonial violence worked in this country, but also because this country has done this kind of perverse and repeated damage to the world. Um, and that understanding of who we are has both a transnational, a global, an imperial, and a domestic sort of iteration is something that I think people need to be more aware of and are becoming more aware of, right? I, th I Amongst, well, I mean, maybe again in the left, there's a lot more awareness of that kind of transnational um, sort of um, violence and the, as it has to do with the legacy of, of U.S. identity. I mean, Stuart Schrader's book on, on policing, all of these things are kind of, and, and within my own field, an increasing awareness of kind of transnational anti-colonial theories and politics, the legacy of empire on, on U.S. thinking. These are things which, uh, which are happening on the left, but it actually, what I would like to see is the kind of, the sort of attenuating of the who we are narrative expanded within popular culture to include that same kind of reflection on U.S. global power. So what I'm saying is, Dan, what I would like is a New York Times op-ed that similarly calls into question who we are as a liberal world order leader. And maybe the relationship between that and who it turns out we are domestically. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And for and the, in a way that, you know, there's just material things that would happen that would benefit everybody if we had these discussions. Right. Marjorie Taylor Greene's not wrong when she talks about just how expensive the war was. But it's not even just the war. It's the fact that we spend an obscene amount of money every year on the security budget that the last what the 2018 budget passed with the support of Democrats and Republicans. Right. This is even under Trump. And the anti-war right probably doesn't have much of a problem with the military budget. They just want us to use the military in a different, more restrained, less boots on the ground sort of way. 
I don't know what they want it for because <laughs> <laughs> they clearly want a military, right? And they want lots of people with guns, but um, but it's unclear what they want in that regard because they 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 actually do sort of I think like the idea of a kick-ass stronger than any other power in the world, United States. They just also occasionally are able to say, wow, in this instance, it was um, really expensive and came at a huge loss of life. Let's talk a bit about these authors' shared obsession with the ancient world. What's with classicists, experts on the remotest human history, having such a major role in crafting present-day foreign policy? And then, you know, both now in the U.S. and then in Edwardian England. So there is a long history of imperialists reading either ancient Rome or ancient Greece to their advantage, right? So there's, and you can, in fact, kind of trace this interesting um, trajectory in British 19th century imperialism where there, the attachment for a long time was to Rome. And then when that didn't work anymore for kind of all of the reasons that I talked about and the changes that were happening in the early 20th century, then Athens becomes the kind of go-to fallback. And Athens is fascinating. I mean, my my really cynical view of this is that the sort of skeletal history around both the centrality of these, um, like a kind of uh, interpretations of the classics for the mainstream sort of uh, literati, and at the same time, the astonishing gaps in knowledge about what's known means that you can read them in all of these ways, which essentially suit the story that you want to tell about the present. Um, and that is, that's the cynical part, right? Which is basically that just, we don't know enough about them and can fill it up. It's like an endless well, which you could fill with whatever goodies you want about the, the contemporary moment. But then there's also the fact that there's just, that there's a particular stories that about antiquity that have to do with kind of a different forms of imperial greatness, which just graft beautifully onto the kinds of justificatory stories that um, contemporary imperialists want to tell. So I have an example in the book where Kagan will sometimes make sort of comparisons to World War I. And in particular, he likes to compare the U.S. to the, the America right now or right before 9 the invasion of Iraq to Britain right before World War I. And he does this thing where he says, you know, it's actually harder for me to do this because more people know about World War I. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to do is just talk about Athens instead. <laughs> I mean, he's totally brazen about it, right? So there's, there's that. But I, the other thing that is so interesting about Athens in particular is that for both Alfred Zimmern and for Donald Kagan, what is so interesting about Athens is it is a projection and distillation of all of their ideas about liberalism, again, onto a moment where we know less about, where there is less historical record, and where we can essentially, it's like, it's not a, it is not a tabula rasa, it is a complicated, already written upon tablet, but there's lots of spaces for, you know, for projection. So for instance, like Zimmern 
read Athens literally as Britain in so many ways that he would sometimes confuse quotations from Burke with quotations from Aristotle, right? They would just go from one, he would he would actually attribute a quotation to Aristotle, but it was really Burke. And you kind of wonder, I don't think he made that mistake on purpose. I think in his mind, they inhabited the same space. And just as Sparta was Germany and for other thinkers later, the, the Soviet Union? It's exactly right, right. That Sparta is this the example of non-liberal existence. It is where the state tells you what to do and there is no freedom. And that's why you're warlike, but in a nasty way, as opposed to Athens, where it, which is just exactly like America and Britain, where you actually can... <laughs> Zimmern once described how, you know, the citizen of Athens was walking down the street and paused to wonder if, you know, he should, if he should get a mixed drink before he went to the Agora. I mean, really, like, he, he, there's the constant comparison and compression of time. Um, and so there's a way in which Athens allows these thinkers to work out their anxieties about the way liberalism isn't quite working in the present, project it onto the past and then project that past back onto the present, right? It's a, Ian Balcom has this language about proleptic nostalgia, where you actually imagine a future in which you're feeling nostalgic about the past. And I call this actually retroactive proleptic nostalgia because they, they retroactively imagine nostalgically what Athens was and then project it onto the Britain and the U.S. now. It's just, it's fascinating. And it, the fact that they are both so, there's a self-awareness, a kind of refreshing self-awareness about a lot of these, these engagements with the classics that uh, it allows you to see kind of in color the things which would otherwise be sort of unspoken or unwritten. They're actually telling you what they're doing. Now we're going to create we're now, now we're going to project the, the, the polis onto the U.S. and we're going to do it this way. And then we're going to tell this story to do it. And it's going to, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So for me, as a political theorist and a reader of, you know, ideology and history, this kind of stuff is so weirdly fascinating and fun because it is just like it's happening in front of your eyes. The strangest thing about their engagement with ancient Greece is their engagement with the historian Thucydides, the author of the classic book, The Peloponnesian War, who's central, of course, for any student of the period, but very much so for these imperial apologists, which is weird because Thucydides, his arguments don't seem to jive with their own arguments because Thucydides wrote that, quote, the real reason for the war, meaning the Peloponnesian War, which leads to the leads to Athens losing the war, which ultimately undermines Athenian democracy. Thucydides argues that, quote, the real reason for the war was the, quote, growth of Athenian power in the fear which this caused in Sparta. And Kagan, amazingly, is obsessed with using kind of weird sources and a bizarre method to prove Thucydides wrong about this. Why are the stakes of interpreting Thucydides so high and how is it that these imperial apologists so egregiously misread a book that contains so many obvious cautionary tales about empire 
and its consequences for a democracy. Right. And which is also extraordinarily explicit about what it's doing. Right. Thucydides comes ahead and says, goes ahead and says, you know, these speeches, um, I heard some of them, but some of them I didn't. And I just sort of pieced together from other people. Right? But I'm going to write them as though I were there. Right. He just tells you that this is what he's doing. So what do we have at stake in reading Thucydides this particular way? So I think it all comes down to the funeral oration. Right. Which is Thucydides rendering of Pericles's um, speech. Speech, um, which he is essentially describing the kind of... Pericles is the leader of 5th century Athens. Right, exactly, right. And is uh, really, it's, it's a speech in which Pericles is praising Athens for just being the best place in the world, right? And what Pericles is saying is everybody else is jealous of us, right? Because we have figured out the perfect polity where liberty or this idea of individual expression and community in the reading in particular of the way that Zimmern and Kagan do it have come together. And that in fact, that's why we're like, we lead other states into our orbit, right? Other people just follow us because we're an education to Greece, not because of anything that we might be doing as um, imperialists, right? And so that speech condenses for them what they want Athens to be. And Thucydides puts it there in the middle of this, you know, mass history of the Peloponnesian War, which is also filled with a number of other very contradictory and problematic and disturbing examples of Athens behaving otherwise, right? So Athens debating whether or not they should kill all the male millions and, and sell the women and children into slavery, right? Like there's this just Athenians behaving badly. And the sense that they, that Sparta actually that the whole thing started because people were worried about Athenian imperial aggression. So it is both the sort of text de jour on this period, and you can't ignore it, and it contains the nugget of what they believe to be truth about themselves and Athens within it. And so both Zimmern and Kagan had to work really hard to convince themselves and other people that Thucydides either didn't believe what he was saying or was wrong. And so they both draw on this history from this colony called Thuri, which is is not written about in the Peloponnesian War, but which they use as an example of a multi-ethnic, well, pan-Greek, right, colony as a way of, like, demonstrating that the Athenians were not just obsessively pro-Athenian, that they did this for the entire, like, on the entirety of Greece. There's a reason that, 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 Zimmern calls his book the Greek Commonwealth and not the Athenian Commonwealth, right? He's project he's actively projecting a vision in which this is a liberal democratic empire, right? And it's just the same thing that Kagan is doing. They want to be able to say the US and Britain and Athens were all liberal democracies who were just also incidentally empires and other people's rage at them is not justified. So Sparta might in fact have been mad at Athens, and that might have had something to do with the war, but the Spartans were wrong. 
because Athens was perfect. It really, it is quite amazing. And it's really different from the way that IR realists read Thucydides. The same year that Kagan played a key role helping Bush uh, make the decision to invade Iraq, he published a book arguing that Athens would have defeated Sparta, and I think you referred to this earlier in the interview, if only Athens had been willing to send the necessary troops to the Sicilian expedition. This is the sort of argument, I think, that sets up all of your thinkers to never be wrong. If imperialism fails, their only answer forever will be that we didn't do enough imperialism. Where does imperial apologia go from here? So, and here's the interesting thing. That's exactly right. And that is an imperial answer to an imperial problem. But it is also a species of liberalism, right? And insofar as historically liberalism is a species of imperialism, right? These things, again, to my mind, are co-constituting political forms of hegemony, right? That liberalism and liberal imperialism, because it can never be wrong, therefore is always the answer to the problems that are created by liberal imperialism, right? It's a tautology with nowhere to go, which is why it's falling apart, right? Which is why I think at the end of the day, we don't need any further example of just how bankrupt this way of looking at the world is than the sort of rise of the reactionary right in Britain and in the U.S., since 2016. And what I would like to be able to do in, is to somehow be able to worm into that hegemonic narrative enough to disrupt it from within, to be able to point out consistent illogic of always solving problems by doing the same problem, things that got you, that created the problems in the first place. But that's a tall order, right? It's a tall order when liberals look at you and say, well, but you and I agree, human rights are good. It's a tall order when, you know, our options are Biden or Trump. It's a tall order when it's, you know, much of the world is conditioned to not looking at the horrors that are carried out in the name of these like massive institutions and societies. And so, um, again, and then this is why I'm writing a book about Edward Said, right? I think the thing that Said did so well was to say that this is always a two-pronged exercise, that this, this is an exercise of both counter, creating counter-narratives that push back against liberal unseeing, so that push back against the kinds of discourses that would hide the imperial past in plain sight. And at the same time for Said, it's also about using imperial, like the connections that are sown through imperialism, ironically, right, as a springboard for humanism. So in some ways, again, I come back to Standing Rock as in a way that these ways that in, in a, that connections forge through imperialism can also then become the way of seeing the world differently and also the way of sort of exposing and making possible forms of human comedy and 
solidarity that we wouldn't see if we were constantly looking away. Well, Jeannie Moorfield, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Jeannie Moorfield is a professor of political theory in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham and a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C. Her next book, Unsettling the World, Edward Said and Political Theory, is forthcoming this fall. Today, we discussed her 2014 book, Empires Without Imperialism, Anglo-American Decline and the Politics of Deflection. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, moving from its home, where it assumes respectable form, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook, and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, also please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really, truly does that is you telling other people that you know why you listen to and like the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. (laughs) 